From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Representative Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger who served in Afghanistan, joins us with insight into what's happening. Then people who are immunocompromised should get a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine if they've already had two doses of either Pfizer's or Moderna's. These are people that never responded to the first two doses of the Pfizer Moderna vaccine. They never generated what we call high antibody levels. And there is research now, certain people will respond to a third dose. We'll talk with an ICU pulmonologist who's advised the state on vaccines about the latest research on COVID-19 boosters, as well as how COVID affects kids. And a new comic book traces a daughter's grief through an abandoned shopping mall and a supernatural world. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. After the collapse of the Afghan government to the Taliban, President Biden addressed the United States Monday. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. Colorado Representative Jason Crow has been following the developments in Afghanistan closely. The former Army Ranger served there and has been pushing the Biden administration for months to do more to help Afghan allies. That includes interpreters who worked with the U.S. military. Welcome, Congressman Crow. Hi, Avery. We saw chaotic scenes at the airport in Kabul Monday with Afghans desperate to get out. Everyone knew the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan. Why does it seem like the U.S. was caught off guard? Yeah, it, it was heartbreaking. It was tragic. Seeing those scenes uh, was uh, terrible for all of us. And I, I think what frustrates me the most is it didn't need to happen. You know, I was calling on the Biden administration since April uh, to actually conduct an orderly and deliberate evacuation of both U.S. personnel and Afghan partners and allies. Uh, and had we, I think, started that evacuation over the last three to four months, we could have done it in an orderly way. Uh, and uh, what happened instead is uh, the evacuation really only started in the last two weeks uh, with a very small number of folks. So we certainly could have avoided that situation. But I, I think it is also important to say that I do agree with the Biden administration on the withdrawal itself. I think this is the right move. It's a tough move. Uh, but the, the president has stood by the fact that he's not willing to pass the buck onto another administration and continue this war, which has gone on way too long and spent too many American lives and way too much money. Uh, the question now is, uh, the, the method of withdrawal, and what do we have to do in the days and weeks ahead to make sure we're saving lives and getting our partners out? Today, there is a larger U.S. military presence at the Kabul airport. They're overseeing evacuations. Do you think that's enough? I don't think it's enough. I've called for more 
uh, U.S. combat power. I think we need to send more troops in. I've been to the Kabul airport multiple times. I know how big of a sprawling compound it is. It's within the city of Kabul, which, of course, is completely controlled by the Taliban right now. If there's ever a moment to overdo it, now is that moment, both for the safety and security of U.S. troops. It's always better to have more force than less in a situation like that. Uh, but also to make sure we're securing the airport, that we're not repeating scenes like we saw over the weekend. Uh, and we are setting up a, a refugee camp within the airport itself to accept uh, the, uh, um, the Afghan partners and allies, get them to safety at the airport uh, so they can await their flights. Because it's going to take a couple of weeks for us to get folks out, uh, given the, the bottleneck at the airport. So let's just get them to safety at the airport. We can set up a tent city there, uh, get it done, uh, get people safe. And then we can process uh, the the rest and deal with the paperwork later. You've said that the big question right now is how the U.S. withdraws. And I know that this question is broad, but what is the responsibility of the U.S. government at this point? Well, the responsibility is uh, very singular and it's very focused, actually. Number one is to get U.S. citizens out. That is our top priority. Americans and U.S. citizens uh, and even a dual national um, Afghan Americans uh, who are there who want to leave. Uh, we have a responsibility to get them out. That's number one. Number two uh, is once we do that, uh, to get our partners and allies out. I mean, these are people who fought with us, who uh, saved American lives, who fought shoulder to shoulder with me personally. I mean, I may not be here talking to you right now had it not been for my Afghan partners and the interpreters who helped uh, me navigate difficult situations and may have saved my life on more than one occasion. Uh, We owe to them the same level of security and commitment that they gave to us over the last 20 years. And this is a moral issue, but it's also a national security one. If the United States of America won't stand by its partners and its friends, we're not going to have partners and friends. And and, and we won't be able to meet the threats of the future and deal with a very uncertain world without our alliances, without our allies. Uh, So we have to make sure we're doing the right thing in the days and weeks ahead. Well, President Biden ran on his foreign policy experience. He told our allies the U.S. is back. What message does the situation in Afghanistan send to our allies? I think it's really important that we draw a distinction between the withdrawal and the the decision to withdraw, which is one that I support. And I think it's the right move, not just for our national security, but for our men and women in uniform. You know, we have now had three generations of Americans that have fought in this war. Over 2,000 have died. Tens of thousands have been wounded. We've spent close to $2 trillion. You know, there's an enormous opportunity cost, uh, an enormous burden on the American people uh, for this 20-year war. Uh, And that's why I think he made the right decision uh, that this is not our war to fight. Uh, But we have to make sure that we are pushing very hard with the international community for the protection of women and children and vulnerable populations and engaging diplomatically, uh, but also just doing the right thing uh, in the the days and weeks ahead. Uh, And that's why I've been very clear. We will have the time to debate the missteps, the the problems, uh, what went wrong, uh, who was responsible over the the past 20 years. Uh, It's going to be a very long and complicated discussion. But right now, our mission is singular and focused. We have an opportunity to do the right thing and to save tens of thousands of lives. And that's why I'm calling on the Biden administration to send in the necessary troops and the resources to get the tens of thousands of folks out save their lives, get them out over the next couple of weeks, and let's get that job done. President Biden did say that the Afghan government collapsed more quickly than anticipated. You're on the Intelligence Committee. Were there signs or concerns from the military or the intelligence community that the Taliban would take over this soon? Yeah, I I was surprised by the speed of the collapse. It was always an option that it would collapse. Uh, the, The fact that it 
um, it fell, both the Army and the government, as quick as it did, uh, was certainly something that uh, I was not anticipating. Uh, and it does raise questions for me. You know, I'm both on the Armed Services Committee and in the Intelligence Committee, and we're going to have to find out in the months and years ahead, and I will be asking questions and calling for these hearings, um, you know, why we didn't um, have better contingency planning, uh, both from an intelligence standpoint, uh, what information was passed along to whom, uh, why uh, we didn't have more military folks on the ground in the past couple of weeks to prevent uh, the chaos that we saw over the weekend. Uh, we're going to have to uh, certainly have that discussion and do congressional oversight on that issue. But, you know, there were also political problems here, you know, policy decisions over the last two decades. Let's not forget four presidential administrations from both parties, uh, multiple Congresses. Uh, you know, this is a war that has a lot of responsibility over many decades. Uh, there, there is not one thing that went wrong. Uh, many things went wrong over a long period of time. Uh, and that's why, you know, I support administration and the decision to end it and say enough is enough. Uh, but we have to make sure that we're you know, doing that long-term analysis after we do the job and the mission in front of us over the next couple of days and weeks and save lives. Democratic Representative Jason Crow, thank you. Thank you. Jason Crow represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District, which includes Aurora and Centennial. He's a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Is there a COVID-19 booster shot in your immediate future? And if not now, when? People with the compromised immune systems can now get a third shot if they've already gotten two doses of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. The news has raised questions about when and if a third dose will become available for everyone. Joining us once again to help provide some answers is Dr. Anuj Mehta, the ICU pulmonologist has several affiliations, chiefly with Denver Health. He has also advised the state on vaccine allocation. Dr. Mehta, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Avery. Thanks for having me back. The Centers for Disease Control, which issued the recommendation, says immunocompromised patients include organ transplant recipients and others on immunosuppressing medications. Data shows that they've had weak responses to the initial doses of the vaccine. What will a third dose do for those who have already received the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines? Yeah, so the way I like to frame boosters, there are two really big different categories. And the first, which is what the CDC recently approved, is actually, I wouldn't even term it as a booster, although I know that's the term being used. These are people that never responded to the first two doses of uh, the Pfizer Moderna vaccine. They never generated what we call high antibody levels. And there is research now that a third dose in certain people, like those who have had solid organ transplants um, and are on medications to weaken their immune system, will respond to a third dose. For those people, we are actually viewing this as a three-dose series as opposed to a two-dose series, and we finally have that data. Um, the second group are the people that for who, who did respond, and maybe their immunity is starting to weaken because of time, time since the second dose, and then there's a, you know, then there's possibility that they may need a third dose. That's not the group we're talking about right now. We're talking about the first group, the immunocompromised folks who never responded to the first two doses. And there's data that some of these people will respond to a third dose. The reality is, is some of them may not. And really, when we talk about people with immunocompromised states or weakened immune systems, it's a very, very, um, what we call heterogeneous group. There's a lot of different types of immunocompromised folks out there. And so this is going to help a lot of them but may not help all of them. 
And again, it's a recommendation. People need to make their own decisions with their physicians and their healthcare team as to whether it's appropriate for them. I'll add that we're only speaking about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Why aren't people who received the one-time Johnson & Johnson vaccine eligible to get a second shot? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the data is just not there. Um, What I've read from the CDC is they are furiously um, working on collecting data about an additional Johnson & Johnson shot. What I can say is that I've heard of some institutions in other states um, considering offering the Pfizer uh, a, a dose of the Pfizer vaccine for those who have received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Um, that's not part of the emergency use authorization. That's not part of what the CDC discussed. And I think some places are, you know, thinking about utilizing an off-label approach. Um, there's just not a lot of data around that. So I think what we really need to do is wait to see what um, data comes out for a second Johnson and Johnson um, dose for those folks. How much of this is due to the Delta variant? Is there a hope that a third shot will be more effective? Um, You know, really for this immunocompromised group, it actually has nothing to do with the Delta variant um, because these are folks that did not respond to the first two doses before Delta even came about. Um, And really, yes, Delta is out there. It means their risk of getting COVID is higher. But the third dose is just meant to generate any immune response. It's not the third dose is not specific to Delta. Um, it's not going to you know generate specific antibodies to Delta. It's just meant to get them to where you know I've had two doses. I don't have an immunocompromised state. Um, and so the third dose is meant to get the uh, people with weakened immune states to like where I am or where other people who have a normal immune state is, who, who receive two doses. And along the same lines, there are breakthrough cases of so fully vaccinated people who still contract COVID. That number is still a very small percentage of people. Is that also part of the pressure to allow boosters? I think there is pressure there. And I think what we're seeing is the number of breakthrough infections is increasing over time. So Again, not focusing, this is slightly different than those immunocompromised folks. Those people never responded to the vaccines to begin with. And there is data that the third dose will help them generate a a response. And we are seeing that a lot of the um, breakthrough cases are in people with weakened immune states. So a lot of the quote unquote breakthrough cases are in these folks. For everybody else, um, we are starting to see uh, we are starting to see increasing numbers of breakthrough cases, and so there's suggestions that over time, much like any other vaccine, the efficacy of the vaccine starts to maybe wear off. So I do think that at some point in the future, um, we're going to see recommendations for boosters, at least for other high risk groups, like say. Um, people living in uh, long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and healthcare workers. So if you remember, those are people that got vaccinated really early in, in or really early on. So I received my first dose on December 21st. So I'm like now almost eight months out um, uh, from, uh, actually eight months out from my second dose. And so for folks like me who are exposed in the hospital, you know, I work in the ICU, so I get exposed and who've had their second dose a long time ago, there's growing evidence that the number of breakthrough infections is increasing. And I think the CDC is really looking at these folks and saying, okay, you know, let's get the best data on safety because safety continues to be the most important thing. Um, and uh, there was reports in, 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 in the media, at least that I read, um, that the Biden administration is looking towards sometime in September to 
um, having maybe some directive about a phased implementation of a larger booster program. But the data is not there. And I think, you know, as scientists, we need to wait till we have good data. And that's what we need to base all of our decisions on. And data changes and science changes over time. And that's important for the public to remember. So even though the high-risk groups that you're talking about, people in long-term healthcare facilities, healthcare workers, people with heart conditions or diabetes, people who are vaccinated really early on, they're not eligible now because, as you've said, this recommended third shot is for people who didn't have a strong response to the first two doses of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. Exactly. And I think I think that's really critical to remember. So I responded. I mean, I, I never got my antibodies level checked, but I responded. People in long-term care facilities responded. We had a good response and we saw evidence of that. We saw infections amongst healthcare workers and infections amongst nursing home residents really plummet. It was amazing. Like this group that was at the highest risk of dying, the nursing home residents, really, it went away. Now we're starting to see an increasing number of breakthrough infections in these groups. And so I think that's where we're going to start focusing some of our um, some of the analysis that's going to happen um, now that we've had this approval for the immunocompromised folks. And then we'll start talking about uh, people with other health conditions. It's important to remember and to remind listeners that, you know, just being older, like over the age of 65, maybe having a couple of chronic conditions like diabetes or heart disease, that doesn't mean you're immunocompromised as defined by the CDC. So the people that are eligible now are really those people that have had um, um, an organ transplant, are receiving chemotherapy for a cancer, or are on other really powerful uh, medications that weaken your immune system. Um, you know, we may talk in medicine that people with diabetes may have a slightly weaker immune system. They may be more prone to colds, but that's not the group we're talking about that's eligible now. It sounds like there's still a lot of data gathering that's happening. There are people who see a third dose of the vaccine as a way to combat the Delta variant. And our health reporter, John Daly, says there are about 7,000 Coloradans who've received a third shot something that they sought out. The Biden administration has said that third doses may begin to roll out in the fall. What would you tell people who might want to act sooner than that, like the 7,000 people we just mentioned? Yeah, you know, I think some of the 7,000 people um, actually got a third dose because one of the first two doses was expired. So um, I've actually advised some of those folks individually because there was issues with people administering expired uh, vaccine or vaccine that had been sitting out for too long. But I do agree that there's a decent number of people out there that have actually sought out their own third dose. Um, You know, I understand why Uh, I'm heading into the ICU in a week and and I'm a little antsy myself uh, because, again, it's been eight months since my second dose. But I really think that we need to wait to see what the data shows and people need to uh, be responsible about their health. So that is a couple things. It means wearing a mask. Um, if you're in an area of substantial or high transmission, wearing a mask indoors, even if you're vaccinated. And waiting for the advisory groups like the FDA and the CDC to tell us when it's safe to get that third dose. The rollout of the initial vaccine was unprecedented, and it has proven to be effective, even though at the time no one really knew how it would go to vaccinate so many people. Why the hesitancy now from officials about providing a third shot, given how well it worked out to this point? Um, I think the first rollout worked really well. Um Uh, from a safety and efficacy perspective, because they waited until they had the right data to make the decisions to authorize the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines back in December and then soon after Johnson & Johnson. They didn't jump the gun when we were still in phase two trials or still waiting for other types of data. They waited until we had adequate safety and efficacy data. 
And I think that's the same thing for a third dose. You know, it's not um, it's not completely a linear um, decision. It's not like, okay, the first two doses were safe. So it's obvious that the third dose is going to be safe and effective. That's actually not a foregone conclusion. Um, I think that what we're seeing with the emerging data in other places that have started to do boosters is that that's very true. Um, but you know what we want of the advisory groups and what um, listeners should want of scientists is saying the most important thing is safety at this point. Um, and, and I think that's what we're really seeing is that this idea of taking a slow and metered approach to vaccine approval, especially given the hesitancy out there. And I would hope that people that are concerned about vaccine safety see the fact that we're not rushing to give extra doses to people um, as further proof that the scientists that are advising the government really are focused on safety first and foremost. And I have to imagine part of that data collection is looking to countries like Israel. It's already begun giving booster shots to people age 60 and older, and it'll provide them for 50-year-olds starting this week. Germany and France have announced plans to start giving booster shots to older adults and other vulnerable populations next month. Are U.S. officials and scientists in communication with their counterparts around the world? And tell me a little bit about that coordination that's taking place in terms of peer reviews and data sharing. Yeah, I think that there's a ton of data sharing. So actually, um, in the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, that's the um, arm of the CDC that provides advice on uh, vaccines, they met on Friday to really approve the plan to give third doses to immunocompromised folks. And I happened to listen in on that meeting. And and the data they were presenting, um, looking forward to potential boosters for everybody else, really was collecting data from you know, the UK from Israel. And so, you know, this isn't something where each country is going on their own. Um, different countries have different standards for approval, and the US tends to be one of the most strict out there. Um, I think that's actually benefited us in the past uh, from pr- protecting us against medications that were later proven to be harmful. Um, but I think that there's amazing amount of data sharing. Peer review does take time. So all the data that's out there on vaccine efficacy six to eight months after the second dose, it has not been peer reviewed. And, you know, this is a new area that we're in. We're not necessarily used to acting on data that hasn't been peer reviewed. The CDC and FDA hasn't done that. But because the pandemic has been moving so fast, this is something that's evolving. And so, you know, the CDC and the FDA are definitely looking and working with other countries um, and, and in a very transparent way. You know, I love the fact that w- the data that was presented was not just from CDC um, analysis, really looked at what's been published as a whole um, uh, from multiple countries and multiple partners. Interestingly, the chief executive of Moderna said last week that countries will have to decide whether to be two months too early or two months too late when it comes to distributing booster shots. Of course, more vaccinations would be good for the company's business. But I wonder if it is an either or question. How much validity do you see in that statement? Uh, that's a tough question. You know, it's... Uh... Small countries vaccinated large percentages of their population very quickly. So you could imagine that there is going to be a, a cliff that they are going to live at um, in terms of time from when they vaccinated their population. The U.S. was a much more phased approach simply due to the size of our population. So I don't really see that as a two month uh, too late, two month too early thing. I do think that we need to have some special attention to people that got vaccinated in December January and February, which if we remember is actually a small number of people. We didn't have a lot of vaccine. So I still think we have a decent amount of time in the US. It's different for a small country like Israel, where you know they're vaccinating essentially a slightly larger population than Colorado, as opposed to um, 
as opposed to you know trying to trying to get to 250 to 300 million adults, which is what the U.S. continues to try and do. Um, so I think we have time to make those decisions, but I do think the you know the clock is started in terms of thinking about the people that were vaccinated early on healthcare workers, nursing home residents. So people at super high risk of severe disease and people at super high risk of exposure. You know, I also want to go back to something that you said earlier, where you're talking about the precautions that people should be taking as they wait for the data to come out. Um, Talking about masks, a lot in the news right now about masks in schools. As you're watching that conversation play out about whether or not to mandate masks in public schools, what are you thinking? I think it's a simple discussion. Um, In my mind, there's absolutely zero debate. Uh, there should be mandatory masks for vaccinated and unvaccinated staff and students in schools and childcare settings, with uh, as long as it's safe for children above the age of two and children without baseline respiratory problems. And there's a simple, simple logic to it. If you want open and safe in-person learning and you want kids to be healthy, the only way you can work out that math equation is with masks. We have seen over and over schools that have opened in the last two weeks shut down in their first week with hundreds, if not thousands of students needing to quarantine. We're seeing this throughout Florida, in Georgia, other places like Tennessee, Texas, areas where mass mandates have not been allowed or by either governor order or just by choice of the local school board, we're seeing schools shut down. And most places do not have an option for online learning. And we know online learning is inferior to in-person learning. So it's simple. You know, I try, I tell my kids, we have 30 minutes to do something. And if they want to watch a movie that takes an hour and a half, they just can't do it. The math doesn't work. If you want safe in-person learning and you want your kids to be healthy and safe, the only way to do that is with masks for both the students and the teachers. And I think it's important. This is where Delta plays a role. You know, we're seeing that people that have been vaccinated as immunity starts to wane off and as we start seeing that people that are infected with Delta that have been vaccinated can still transmit the virus, it is critical that teachers who have been vaccinated and students that have been vaccinated also be masked until we're out of this current surge. And, you know, I I, I wear a mask all day in the hospital. Surgeons before the pandemic would wear a mask all day in the hospital. So for people to tell me that it's not feasible or it's dangerous is just a lot of misinformation. Masks are safe. Masks are effective. They're not ideal, but they're also the only way to guarantee that we have safe in-person learning. I think that's also a lot of people's exhaustion talking and people's sort of being very tired of a pandemic. Tell me a little bit more about how you arrived at this conclusion, knowing that kids are less likely to get a serious case of COVID-19 or to die from COVID-19. Yeah, I've learned a lot about kids and COVID in the last couple of months. So there's growing evidence that, you know, we're seeing all over the place that kids are filling up hospitals. So, you know, there's been reports that in Dallas, which is the major pediatric referral center for Texas, there are no ICU beds left for children. And if you have a child who's even in a car accident, so not even COVID, who needs the intensive care unit, they're being flown to places like Oklahoma because they don't have resources anymore. Um, So this is impacting kids that don't even have COVID. Also, we're seeing higher infection rates likely associated with Delta amongst children, higher hospitalization rates. So kids do get sick from COVID and kids can die from COVID. I think that's absolutely critical to know. But everyone's right. Compared to adults, kids are less likely to get seriously ill. But a really surprising number that I've been reading a lot about has been the long haul symptoms for kids. 
And we're seeing that more than 10 to 15% of kids that have tested positive, so either had mild disease or were asymptomatic, are developing long-haul symptoms of COVID. And for kids, that's confusion, lack of being able to pay attention, severe fatigue. And you can imagine that if a kid is in school trying to learn, and really the key parts of their development, and they're now have brain fog or too tired to get out of bed, how devastating that can be to their development. You know, it's devastating to adults, but, you know, our brains have really formed. We have no idea what the long-term effects of long-haul COVID is going to be in, in, in kids. And so when we start talking about 10 to 15% of kids that test positive are developing these types of symptoms, I find that statistic really terrifying. So if you accept the fact that, you know, kids are maybe less likely to get go into the hospital and that's what, what your protection is, I would think about the other side of the equation as well, that even if they're not in the hospital, they may be affected long term. And there's nothing that I feel like our government and our health officials, there's no higher responsibility than protecting children. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm pretty, I, I'm very very firm in my opinion that I think masking is super critical um, in schools right now to keep people safe. And, you know, if people don't want to mask, you know, there are are homeschooling options. I think that, you know, I don't want to say that everybody has to do that, but to enter that building, I I think that that's that's the safest thing. That's the most minimal thing that we as a society can do to keep uh, children safe. And if that's not important to families or parents and they want to make that individual choice, then I think we should have um, online learning um, solutions for them. Um, to protect them and to protect the kids that are willing to wear a mask in school. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Avery. Dr. Anuj Mehta is a pulmonologist who works with Denver Health and has helped advise the state of Colorado on vaccine allocation. Meantime, the second largest school district in the state has implemented a mask mandate beginning today. Jefferson County Public Schools now requires anyone age two and older to wear a mask inside and at all school-based extracurricular activities. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It was 30 feet long, 14 feet tall, and weighed 14,000 pounds. 150 million years ago, the plant-eating Stegosaurus lumbered across Colorado. Plates above its spine gave it the name Stegosaurus, meaning roofed lizard. Its back sloped down to a small head housing a brain the size of a walnut. On its back end, it also tapered off, but with a significant defense mechanism. Four long spikes near the tip of a tail, it could swing with great force. The first Stegosaurus fossil was found at Dinosaur Ridge near Morrison in the 1870s. And in 1982, the Stegosaurus was immortalized twice over. It officially became Colorado's state fossil, and artist Gary Larson finally gave that spiked tail a name. The Thagomizer, a caveman says in a Farside cartoon, and paleontologists now use that invented word for the formidable weapon at the tail end of a Stegosaurus. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. Colorado has long taken erosion control for granted. That's because forests did most of the work, even during major rain events. But with climate change, wildfires are burning away more and more of the state's natural infrastructure. CPR's Sam Brash reports on one high-flying solution and how local governments are scrambling to pay for it. Randy Gustafson's job is to protect the mountain water supply for Greeley, Colorado. Lately, that's been a ticket to a daily air show. All right, what we're seeing is it happens. That helicopter is just fueled up, and he's going to come over to the uh, mulch pile. A chopper lowers a long cable to the base of Poudre Canyon. A crew hooks it to a net packed with 1,300 pounds of shredded wood scraps. Yeah, it's wild. And uh, now he's, now he's going to pick it up. 
He's got a map in his helicopter that tells him where to drop it. The aircraft is headed to one of the most severely burnt sections from last year's Cameron Peak fire, the largest in state history. The hope is the mulch will hold back the hillside. Otherwise, the next rainstorm could trigger a rush of erosion. Our fear is that the uh, debris and the ash will come into the reservoirs and uh, make the water undrinkable. Sean Chambers leads Greeley Sewer and Water Department. He says the project hasn't been cheap or easy. It required local governments and nonprofits to first carefully map the burn scar, then gain special approval from the Forest Service, and finally to find the money to pay for it. This is pretty expensive work. On a per acre basis, it fluctuates between about $2,500 and $3,000 an acre. Chambers says the $30 million plan calls for mulch across about 11,000 acres. So far, it has the funding for about half of that, and it's lobbying for additional help from the federal government. Resources from the infrastructure bill or some other federal legislation that allow this work to continue. And that's just to finish this project. Long term, Chambers says climate change will demand more of these complicated, expensive efforts to protect watersheds. And that often runs against the government's current approach to conservation. For example, it's not allowing any mulching inside protected wilderness areas, even if it could help water supplies. Most municipal water providers in the West, and particularly along the Front Range of Colorado, rely on federal watershed for source water. And so how we partner in navigating the impacts of climate change and navigating the impacts to our forests is important. And those impacts aren't waiting for a big rethink of forest policy. After leaving the helicopter landing site, Chambers and I drive a few miles up Poudre Canyon to Black Hollow Road. This is where a deadly flash flood hit last month. Dan Bond lives in the area. He says that night was terrifying. All of a sudden the power went out, looked outside, and there was about 12 inches of water and mud going by my door. He put on some rubber boots and went outside. He saw the creek had become a torrent of water, mud, and debris, so strong it grabbed a hold of his neighbor's home, which is now crushed against the riverbank at our feet. I saw you know, this house with I knew occupants in it going down the river um, and was shocked with that and, and just, it's just been overwhelming. Three people died in the flood, and one other is still missing. The disaster also filled the Poudre River with sediment. Both Fort Collins and Greeley are relying on a secondary source of water, but eventually hope to reopen their intakes. Yeah, so I don't know if you've been able to visit the mulch site. As we speak, Chambers tells Bond the helicopter crew had planned to mulch the burn scar above his neighborhood. So the timing of the storm was was just poor, right? I don't, you know, you know. I, I think of, of dropping mulch and, and you get a bunch of rain and it's just going to wash down with the rest of it. Which is a real possibility. But Chambers insists it might have helped. And with life, property, and water all on the line, he says it's essential to do anything to help the forest recover. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Grief can be a winding journey. In the new comic book Grieving Mall, a daughter searches for closure after her estranged mother dies. It's the latest story from graphic novelist R. Allen Brooks. He teaches writing for Regis University's MFA program and Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Hi, Alan. Hi, how's it going? Going well, thank you. Visual artist Sarah Menzel Trappel of Aurora is the illustrator. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. 
The two of you have collaborated before. Sarah, you provided colors for Alan's earlier graphic novel, Anguish Garden. When you decided to work on the story together, Alan asked you what kind of story you'd want to draw. What did you tell him? I gave him a whole bunch of random references because I have a lot of interests. Um, (laughs) I think I gave him, you know, some different emotionally driven stories and psychological dramas, um, some anime and manga I liked. And somehow he took all of those inspirations and kind of created this story that I was really interested in drawing. And I'm I'm super impressed that he was able to do that, honestly. Alan, tell me about these references. What was it like for you to get those? Well, it was interesting. Uh, So uh, Sarah likes these sort of mysterious stories that uh, don't always resolve. And I come to stories from sort of a different place. So I had to try to find what was the common theme and then figure out what is my version of that kind of story. And it feels like we kind of did that. And what's the place that you come to stories from if it's not mysterious or stories that don't resolve? Yeah, you know, I usually want to follow a character's journey. Uh, That's kind of the most important to me. Like, what is the human connection? What's the personal thing? And I do kind of like things to resolve. (laughs) So we found something that was kind of a, I would say, the middle ground between both of those perspectives. So without giving too much away, just briefly, what is this story about? What are the themes and what's the story that you found that you could both work on together? Yeah, it's sort of a a magical realism story about a woman who's experiencing grief and trying to reconnect with her strange mother. So it's sort of a meditation on grief. And where did the seed of this story come from for you, Alan? You know, um, about a decade ago, my mother almost died. Thankfully, she's, she's well now. But it made me want to process through my art and think about sort of how to prepare for really heavy grief. And of course, I never quite figured that part out. But one of the things I did figure out was how much people regret leaving things unsaid when someone dies. And that's kind of where I started with this story. Hmm. And Sarah... You told Alan that you wanted the main character in this story to be plus-sized. Tell me a little bit about why that was important for you. Well, I think before working on Grieving Mall, I was having a hard time connecting to my creativity. And I think in part that was because I was drawing a lot of industry standard body types. And that's not my experience. I'm a plus-sized person. So... um, It was just an idea. I thought maybe drawing a plus size character would kind of help me move through some of this creative block that I was having. And um, it was really interesting because through the process of drawing this plus size character, I think it helped me address a lot of my internalized fat phobia that I kind of held over the years, you know, growing up as a bigger kid, you know. So um, for me, I felt I found the whole experience of creating this project just sort of a meditation for me in that way as well. And part of the thing here is Lorraine, this is the character. The story is not about her body. It is about her journey of trying to connect with her estranged mother. How is it to draw a character who has this thing that you share and that resonated with you, but the story is not about that? Well, I think representation of all kinds is really important. And sometimes just having a character that is representing some kind of otherness just existing within the story itself can be really helpful. And I think seeing more of those kind of characters who aren't, you know, 
the focus of the story is not their trauma um, can be really good for anyone to see. And, um, you know, I think Lorraine has a lot of problems in the story, but her body type isn't one of them. And I think that's really nice to see because in the media, oftentimes bigger bodied characters, that is like a huge aspect of their storytelling is, you know, how they experience their body. And um, for me, I think growing up, it would have been helpful to see characters who were who were plus size, bigger bodied, just existing and dealing with their other problems. So that's kind of why I really enjoy her as a character. Alan, tell me about how you're thinking about the representation. Yeah, you know, I think if uh, if I'm writing a story and who a character is demographically, if that's as far as I've gone to define them, then I might be well on the way to writing a bad story. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're all uh, so much more than the bodies we happen to be born in. Uh, certainly the bodies we were born in influence the way we experience the world and influences the way people react to us. But if in the telling of a story, I can't go any deeper than that, then I, uh, uh, you know, I think that's a problem. And I, I mean, I think there's a problem in real life if you don't see people beyond the bodies they were born in. I also want to talk about some of the striking places in this story. This book gets a title from an abandoned mall where Lorraine and her classmates hit a time capsule when they were kids. Alan, why did you set the climax of this story at a derelict shopping mall? <laughs> well, you know, uh, a lot of times when I ask an artist what they want to work on, I, I start with what kind of things they want to draw. Uh, and Sarah kind of gave me an idea of what sort of backgrounds and settings were interesting to her. But also over the years, I've been seeing these tumblers uh, where like people break into old abandoned malls and take photos. And, you know, it's just very interesting to me how malls represent, they used to be such a center of life and connection and community. And now a lot of the ones that have been abandoned throughout the country represent like the passage of time, loss, you know, kind of what used to be. And I think that forms a really cool parallel for a person who's grieving. Yeah. And it's even kind of spooky. Sarah, tell me about the, I mean, it's not, this is a magical surrealism, but there's kind of a horror element here too, right? Yeah. I gave Alan a whole bunch of horror comic references because I also really love reading horror comics. And um, I think he kind of incorporated some of that into the storytelling, which I really appreciated. There's a lot of mood building and I really tried to reference some of my favorite artists a bit with the inking at least, um, so that it would kind of incorporate some of those interests of mine as well. And the story isn't about COVID-19 at all, but you created this story about grief in the midst of a pandemic. How did that affect the way that you thought about your work, Sarah? I, I think we all have felt a lot of grief throughout the pandemic and, um, you know, in my personal experience, I lost my grandmother due to COVID pretty early on. And, you know, when we were creating this comic, I was definitely thinking about that and just, I was still processing it. I think I still am. So, you know, I think it's a good time for this comic to come out. I think a lot of people, even if they haven't lost someone, are still dealing with the grief of just dealing with this every day and hearing all the stories. So, um, I think it's a good time for it to come out. I hope that people can connect to it beyond just the story that um, Grieving Mall is about, and they can kind of see that it's a product of the time as well. 
I'm really sorry about your grandma. Alan, tell me about how this time and this pandemic we're in shaped the way that you were thinking about grief and what you want readers to take from this story. You know, um, I, I think one of the biggest things that for me was uh, isolation, you know, seeing, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally an introvert, so I kind of like being alone, but just seeing how much isolation affected people so negatively and how, what it was like to be cut off, you know, from people. Uh, and that feeling of isolation definitely crept its way into this story. So, you know, it's a character who's relatively successful in her life, but doesn't seem to have any really close connections. And uh, I think for people who are reading this story, I want them to feel that the, the, the relationships that they have been cut off from, sometimes they can take a step forward, hmm. reach out and reconnect. Well, I wanna thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Grieving Mall is a comic book written by R. Allen Brooks of Denver and Sarah Menzel Trappel of Aurora. It comes out on September 19th, and there will be a comic release party at Mutiny Info Cafe in Denver. Trappel is a visual artist. Brooks' previous graphic novels, Anguish Garden and The Burning Metronome, he teaches writing at Regis University's MFA program and Lighthouse Writers Workshop. The cannabis and brewing industries are growing in Colorado, but getting the proverbial foot in the door can be challenging. It's something colleges in the state are taking notice of. Here's CPR's Paolo Schulceda. The Community College of Denver is hoping to capitalize on the popularity of the state's cannabis industry by offering an associate's degree in cannabis business. The program, the first of its kind in the state, partners with industry professionals like Carly Bader, a biomedical scientist who works in cannabis testing labs. She says she had to learn a lot of the aspects of the industry on the job because of a lack of formal instruction, something she hopes to resolve as an adjunct professor. Once they've completed this program, they do have all the tools in their toolbox to start going into the workforce with really every skill that they need, something that we haven't been able to see within hiring in the cannabis industry so far. Students will also be taught about cannabis science and how to navigate the legal ramifications of running a dispensary. A similar professional path is developing just a couple buildings down at the Metropolitan State University of Denver for people like Teresa Zimmer who are interested in craft brewing. It's different from the brewing industry in Germany. In Munich, she worked for major brewing companies. We have a purity law which only allows us to use certain ingredients. Here in the United States is completely different. Um, Denver or Colorado has a wide range of different types of breweries and what they focus on. The bachelor's program has been offered since 2015. Students can get hands-on training at facilities like the campus brewery. Both the cannabis and beer industries suffer from similar problems. They're big drivers of the economy that are rapidly growing, but they lack formal pipelines to jobs. Zimmer says she likes MSU Denver's program because she'll have more opportunities. I would prefer, of course, to go into quality control and assurance. That means testing the beer, make sure that the customer gets the best and the safest product. It's possible the two curriculums will eventually intersect. 
Experts say beers containing CBD products will start hitting the taps and shelves soon. I'm Paolo Chalcida, CPR News. Finally today, Isabel Fries leads a busy life. The 23-year-old from Denver teaches special education, serves on the board of a global nonprofit, and has traveled to Uganda to do humanitarian work. A lot of times I do too much, and I was always just the kind of person that said yes to things. It's kind of how my parents raised me, just to kind of like take any opportunity that comes your way. And I did. And now I'm I'm juggling a billion different things. (laughs) Including a blossoming career as a singer-songwriter. Isabel Free's music has been featured in a Hallmark movie and earned recognition from the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. Her latest single, Fight For Me, came out in July. She says it's a personal story about people who have her back. I have very severe anxiety and that can control your life sometimes. And so having people around you that stick with you through those darker moments or through those times where like you've lost yourself. And it's, you know, specifically about some of the people in my life that have done that for me forever. That even when I try to push them away, they they always come back or they always stay. I don't talk to no preacher. I don't pray to no sovereign saint. As I walk through my desert, it give me shade and drops of rain. You tell me you will fight for me even if I say I don't need your help, but I the fade away. You tell me you will fight for me every time I fall. Fight for me, the latest track from Denver singer-songwriter Isabel Fries. And thanks to the team that always has your back. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's